an unlikely entrepreneur. What does that mean? We're all unlikely entrepreneurs. We're all doing things a little different. We're all coming from a different spot. When you accomplish the things that our guest today has accomplished and you've overcome the things that he has overcome, you are the definition of the unlikely entrepreneur. The great story of P. Graham Dunn. We know him as Peter is on our show next. This is a dash of grit. Recipes for success from courageous leaders who overcome challenges and build great things. Now, podcasting from Spire to leaders in local communities like yours, here is Brian Leflock. And let's get cooking. You know, sometimes we take things for granted. We take quality for granted. We take success for granted. We take all the things that we just know and love about the world, and we just say, ah, this has always been here. This is great. This is the way it's always done. Now, I know as a young man and as an adult, buying gifts, decorating the house, you, you get what you pay for, right? And when you buy from P. Graham Dunn, you know you are getting quality. At least in my neck of the woods here in Ohio, we know that P. Graham Dunn stands for quality. It always has, but it hasn't always been so successful. It hasn't always been so easy. And I'm so excited to share with you um, the story of the founder and the, uh, the president and the name behind the excellence of P. Graham Dunn. Peter Graham Dunn is our guest today on A Dash of Grit. Peter, welcome to the show. Brian, it's nice to have met you. Uh, I think we're going to have some fun here. Um, uh, let's 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 move in. I think we are too. I'm really excited for for you. I, I I'm excited for our listeners too. I think the entrepreneurial spirit, and you've written a book called The Unlikely Entrepreneur. We're going to talk about that in just a little bit. Um, but the entrepreneurial spirit has to start somewhere. It has to start from kind of scratch. That's the definition of it. And a lot of people have big dreams. You've accomplished at least uh, as much as some other people will dream. And so I'm thrilled for you to share that story with them because what I want to do is inspire folks who are struggling through things to uh, to make things come true. And so you've done that. We're going to talk about that in a second. But if you can a little bit, would you brag for us about the P. Graham Dunn store, about success, about the things you've accomplished so that when we talk about the hurdles, <laughs> it'll really mean something. Tell us a little bit more about yourself and your business. Brian, like you said, it's Maybe more difficult to talk about your successes. Uh, I, yes. I don't like to blow my own whistle. I prefer people do that for me. Right. Um, and um, we do have a very successful company. We have um, 300 employees producing uh, wall art, um, three shifts a day, uh, six days a week. Uh, due to COVID, we're not able to keep up. We're completely swamped. Yeah. Uh, we have uh, national accounts all across the country. Um, total uh, number of uh, uh, storefronts that carry our product uh, is 16,000. Wow. Uh, 8,000 of those are mass merchandising accounts, and the other 8,000 are independent uh, ma-pa shops uh, in, uh, all across the United States and Canada. Fantastic. Um, in, uh, we actually sold the company. Our family, um, uh, there was uh, six of us, and we were the shareholders of the company. We sold it to our employees as an employee stock ownership plan, an ESOP. Good for um, you. In August uh, 30th of 2019, um, I stayed around for a little while as a consultant. 
but that did not work. Um, I am not a consultant. <laughs> no, <laughs> hard to keep your hands out of things, wasn't it? <laughs> I'm the the lead the lead dog in in the uh, dog sled for uh, 43 years, and all of a sudden I wasn't that, and it was a very difficult experience. So. Uh, fortunately, I was able to back out of that, and I found fulfillment in a number of other areas. Of course, the book was a was a big bridge for me, being able to. Uh, it's the first time I've written a, a book, and I found it to be very fulfilling, very cathartic. Um, and uh, it was released uh, May one of this year, and we're seeing some uh, rather interesting results to it. I can't wait to uh, to talk about it more. I'm, I'm interested now that you've sold the company and looking back, what. If someone asked you, and I'm asking you, what are you most proud of? One, give me one thing that you're most proud of. You're, you're still American-made and American-owned and, and employee-owned and 300 employees and start from scratch. What one thing stands out that you're really proud of? I think the one thing that I'm most encouraged by and thankful for is the culture that we were able to establish in the business. Mm-hmm. Uh, the first two employees that we hired um, are still with me. They've been with me for, they're there now for 44 years. Wow. Um, and that's one of the reasons we did the ESOP. If you sell outside of the company, those types of employees are no longer there. And it's the employees that built the company. Um, I was there. I may have led the company, but they are the ones that did the work. So I'm I'm very proud of the of the culture of the business. It's it's very um, um, I, I'm very careful for anything that I feel corrupts the culture um, and it degrades it. Um, and we, um, we, we like to uplift uh, each other. We like to encourage each other. And I, I think it's that culture of, of taking care of the details and doing things right, shipping product that satisfy people that inspire others, um, which also inspires the, incur- the employees. And so I would say the thing that I'm most proud of is the culture that we've created and the pul- culture that we've preserved through an ESOP without selling it outside of the company, the culture would have gone down the toilet. Yeah. And, and God bless you for doing that. And I hope more businesses will want to do that. I think it's an amazing option. I'm wondering if the the culture part that you're most proud of, if you think back to when it started, when the company started, and when you started this portion of the company in your of your career, was that a goal? Was that culture on purpose or did it just happen, but the right people at the right time? No, the culture was not a goal and it mm-hmm. was not on purpose. And I had another company for 10 years that I sold in 87 uh, that did not have that culture. Mm-hmm. Um, I wasn't smart enough to figure out how important culture was in creating a successful business. Uh, and as a result, the wheels came off uh, completely and I came within an inch of bankruptcy. Um, so and such a thing as orderliness, having a, 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 a in a woodworking shop, there's sawdust everywhere. Um, and if you don't absolutely clean your shop before you go home at night and maintain that type of um, conscientious um, way of running the business, then you're not protecting the culture. So it's those very graffiti, anything on the wall that's written that's inappropriate, it comes down immediately. Mm-hmm. Those are the things that uh, I kind of watch for. And then when I watch for it, they start to watch for it too. So it becomes a very... Um, important part of the whole business. Yeah. And so the overall de- uh, excellence and definition of quality kind of creates a culture the exact same way. It just kind of goes together. One can't be without the other, right? That's right. That's right. You mentioned bankruptcy and so many of our of our shows here on Dash of Grid are about hurdles and, and struggles. And so let's talk about that. Let's go back to when you weren't 
uh, as successful and, and so proud of everything. And you were just starting from, from scratch and, and moving through the pain. Can you talk to me a little bit about the early days of the company and some st- share, stories that you'd like to share? Well, I found out that I was a, a better salesman than I was um, a business manager. Um, a, I could uh, I could sell a car to an Amishman. Um, <laughs> I, um, um, but as a result, I got into all of these uh, large accounts. Back then, it was uh, J.C. Penney and Montgomery Wards and Sears Roebuck and so on um, that I had no business being involved with. Uh, because I hadn't mm-hmm. laid the groundwork for how to manage a business in the first place. Um, but I kept on selling and we kept on attempting pr- to produce um, until it got to the point where financially it wasn't viable. We were shipping products um, that were defective, um, products that were not holding together. We got into building uh, furniture with uh, pine wood that wasn't properly dried and um, I remember being called to go out to uh, uh, Colorado to m- meet with some JCPenney uh, distributors out there, and uh, the wheels just came off. It was just a total mess. Where did um, the wheels come off? Did the wheels come off on their end that they weren't satisfied, or that you weren't satisfied? We, we were we were shipping defective product. Yeah, and actually, kind of unknowingly shipping defective product because we didn't un- we didn't know what we were doing, but <laughs> that didn't stop me from jumping into it anyways. Uh, the typical entrepreneur with uh, with a lot, a lot of confidence, but not enough experience uh, to be to be able to pull it off. So then, what happened then? Uh, well, J.C. Penney, uh, I I got one invoice from them that was deducted by two hundred fifty thousand dollars for defective goods. At the time, it was a $4 million company. We had over 100 employees. Um, J.C. Penny came along and said, we've got to send into you somebody that can help you manage your business uh, or we're going to pull your account. Well, at that point, I couldn't live without their account. So they brought in this business manager um, who uh, I had to basically defer the management of the business to. Um, and then things really um, fell apart. Then it's not your business anymore. It's not my business anymore, but my name was on it. So then and, what happened? So it fell apart. Tell me about that. Um, well, I, I had I tried to refinance the company through three or four different resources uh, with people that I knew. Uh, I went to an investor in New York City, um, and I write about this in the book as well. But all of those options just fell apart. It was like, nope, we, we made look at the financials and it's like, you're not viable. You don't have a viable business. Um, and so the manager that had come in from JCPenney wanted to buy the business. And uh, at that point, we felt that was our only option. Um, we uh, went through a closing. Uh, we sold the business for $80,000. Um, and the, the day after the closing, he devalued all the shares to zero. He told all of the um, creditors um, that um, there was nothing to pay the company with. He continued to collect all of the accounts receivables um, and walked away with um, what I heard was around seven or $800,000. Um, so oh, my goodness. He knew what he was doing. He knew he would. But how did that make you feel? Now, you started this business and you had the employees and this guy just walked away with everything. Where does that leave you? Um, it, it left me, uh, believe it or not, it, I, in fact, three months be, before we closed, I'd already started my new company, P. Graham Dunn. 
because I said to myself, Peter, you're an idiot. Uh, these are all the things that you did wrong. And now you know what the mistakes that you made. You're 40 years of age. It's a perfect time to start over and put all those lessons to work hmm. uh, and starting a new company. Uh, and so in a way, it was a tremendous relief. It was a relief to get out from underneath the burden. Um, and it was a relief, relief, relief to start over um, with, my, with, with my same two employees that I had started with, uh, wood decor. Um, and, but we stayed really um, under the radar for five years. Um, I didn't borrow a dime. I didn't use a credit card. I had no credit. Everything was all cash. Um, uh, until I got a, an order for $50,000 that I couldn't finance. Um, so I, I called a bank in and I said, I, I'd like to borrow, make a loan. And he looked at me and he said, well, you have no credit. And I said, well, I, I don't have bad credit either. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, he, at that point, we, that was our, our first loan. Uh, and at that point, I, by then, I'd also learned how to manage the, the money that I had. And so you can borrow money effectively or you can borrow money foolishly. And fortunately, I had learned how to borrow money effectively. Uh, and as a result, uh, over the next 30 years, we were able to um, um, do what we did. It, it, it was, but it was baby steps all the way along. There were never any quantum steps. It was just baby steps. Uh, bunts and singles is what I used to say. We don't like home runs. They clear the bases. That's uh, right. That's right. Keep, keep it small. Say, keep it under complete control. Go home and sleep well at night. Now, that's not to say we didn't run into obstacles, but um, it, it took the failure of wood decor for me to recognize what it really took to run a business successfully. And um, <laughs> on another podcast I was on, uh, I said something about when you're going to make a mistake, make a mistake as quick as you can. So you can start over as soon as you can. Yeah. Uh, because um, you, you, a, 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 a hard driving uh, entrepreneurial business person who goes through an early failure is actually handed a gift because it uh, provides for him an opportunity that uh, he was incapable of utilizing when he first started. Because when you first start, you don't have a clue what you're doing. Is that gift, though, ever misperceived as, oops, that door's closed. I guess I need to be doing something else. What separates you from someone else that says, when you failed, you couldn't wait to jump back in. When the rest of us fail, we're like, oh, no, don't hit me again. I'll just, I'll do something else. You know, we quit. Uh, I'm looking at that sign behind you on the, it says grit. Yes, sir. And um, I, for, I'm Scots-Irish. Um, I don't quit too easily. Um, I, I, I persevere. Um, and, um, it was, yeah, I think some people feel that if they failed once, uh, they're, they're toast, they won't be able to recover, but if they really think it through and find out for the reasons for their failure and connect those dots, they're really in a position now to start over. Um, but yeah, you, you've got to be dedicated. You've got to be committed. Um, and at 40 years of age, I wasn't, I don't think I was in a position where I could start off with something totally new that I was not familiar with. I totally understood the wood, wood products manufacturing process. I understood all the suppliers, the equipment, the technology, which at that point was pretty minimal. Um, and so it was just like, let's start over and let's just do this right. 
And thankfully, it turned out that way. And doing it right, that leads me to my next question. You grew fast and you had immediate success and you were instantly into, instantly is probably a strong word, but in JCPenney and you just overgrew. How did you learn quickly to do bunts and singles and not just learn to hit home runs better? Because you learned from JCPenney that, look, if I can just you know right. figure out a way to produce more product with more quality, I can be in JCPenney again like that. But yet you went to the slow, do it right quality step. What, what well, caused that? I learned that overselling was a liability. Um, I, I learned that being successful and walking into and cold calling. I literally cold call at Sears Roebuck. I remember going up the elevator and I had some names and so on. And I, I, within a year, I had five pages in their catalog, um, but didn't know what, how to follow up with that. Um, yes. And so when I started over, it was like, Peter, forget about um, the sales end of the business, concentrate more on the mechanics of operating and running a business. Um, and if you do that, the sales will continue to take care of themselves if you produce good products that sells through and that people are happy with. So concentrate more on the system uh, that assures the future of the business instead of going in and doing your dog and pony show and thinking you came home, uh, hit a home run, and that really you, you started at the wrong end. Yeah. Uh, but And so we didn't start dealing with mass merchandisers um, the second time around at P. Graham Dunn. Um, until we'd probably been in business 20 for 20, 20 to 25 years. And so that was all on purpose. And I'm, I'm interested in this other part that was on purpose. When you started the company, the, when you restarted the company, mm -hmm. you named it P Graham Dunn. You put your name on the, on the, on the front of the door. Can you give me some understanding of why you chose to do that this time, this second go around? Um, I was born in China as a, a child to missionary parents and, um, we were caught in the middle of this uh, civil war between the nationalists and the communists. And the directors of the mission board um, mandated that we fly out of China over the Himalayas or the hump, as it's called, to India. Um, my parents flew out on a, on a plane, um, but th their supervisor, uh, Graham and Elsie Hutchinson, were not allowed, gave up their seat literally for my mom because she was pregnant at the time mm. um, and said, we'll take the next plane out. The next plane out crashed and the Graham Hutchinsons were killed. My mother, when uh, she heard that, she said, my first male child will be born. I will uh, want to name him after Graham Hutchinson. So that's where uh, P. Graham Dunn came from. When our son Thomas was born, and he's now uh, 37, we named him Thomas Graham Dunn. And so when we started the business, we said, we're going to honor the Graham Hutchinsons one more, one more step by naming it P. Graham Dunn. And so that's the origin of the name uh, behind P. Graham Dunn. Good for you. And that does fit because the origin of the name and, and, and what the name stands for is as much about your product as anything else. And I think it's important that people know that. So thank you for sharing that. And so putting, my, uh, putting P. Graham Dunn on the back of every product that we sell with the sticker was our way of saying, we're going to put something out that, we, uh, that honors P. Graham Dunn, but that also um, maintains the integrity of the business. Um, so that when you're producing items, it's something. Uh, if your name's on the back of it, you're going to make sure it's done right, and you're going to make sure the customer is happy with what he gets. Yeah. And was there a conscious moment when you were trying to decide what to call the next company where you said, "No, I'm putting my name on this product it's the way it's going to be," or were there other opportunities? No, I, I mean, I think we weighed with: Are we being vain by putting our name on the business? And you know, does it have to be all about you? Uh, but I decided it wasn't about me. 
It was about maintaining the integrity of the business by putting my name onto the products yeah. and onto the company. Yeah. And I think that means everything when someone gets uh, one of your, your pieces as a gift or puts it on the wall, it's it's got your signature behind it. And even if they don't know you and now they do, uh, or if they read your book, they will. Um, but it means something. It has There's something about that name on the back that says something to me. I'm interested in the evolution of the company. So you restarted and, and we're hitting Bunsen singles, moving your way up. Uh, it took a few years to to grab the kind of success that you had before, but what happened next? What kind of hurdles did you have to overcome then? The next hurdles were how to grow the business. Um, we we were on the family farm, uh, which is very important to us. It's been there for seven generations, um, and I had to play the dance of like if I overextended myself and we owned the family farm, uh, and I did go through bankruptcy, I would lose the farm, which to me was more important than the business itself. Yeah. Um, we put up our first building on the farm. Uh, it was about $1.3 million uh, in, in the year 2000. And we outgrew that in 2007. And that's when we moved over um, to um, P. Graham Dunn on State Route 30. And I had to go back to the bank a second time. And this time I needed to borrow $6 million. And we had, didn't even have the first one million dollar <laughs> and did the same banker say but you don't have any credit <laughs> well at that point i think we were doing well enough that um although they did um uh, so we uh, put up the in 2007 we moved into the new facility uh, over on, on state route 30 Mm-hmm. Um, and then, of course, along came the Great Recession in 2008. Yes, sir. Um, and we came back from the January shows, and our sales were 50% less than they were the previous January. And we had the mortgage on the new property. We had the mortgage on uh, the farm. And I thought, boy, we are in trouble now. Um, and I, I came out with a unique way of pulling ourselves through that uh, recession. Um I said to myself, if if I could put laser engraving machines into our stores where they could make their own products using lasers uh, on products that we sold to them, um, maybe that could pull us through uh, this great recession. So I I went to my supplier in France who was, uh, was providing us with the, with these epilogue machines. They were ten thousand uh, dollars each, and I said, could you sell me a hundred of these machines and give me a year to pay you back? Well, he was looking for business, too, because business was a little flat for him. He said, yeah, we'll do that. So I got 100 of these machines. I went to a, our sales organization in Atlanta and presented to them this idea of putting these 100 machines into stores um, at no cost to the customer. All they had to do was buy $600 worth of product from us each month uh, for the use of the machine. If they didn't buy $600 worth of product, they'd have to pay us a $250 penalty for having the store and the machine without being without it being used. Um, okay. Long story short, um, we placed 140 of those machines uh, in the stores. Uh, back in January of 2008, everybody on management team had to re- uh, we had to reduce our salary by 25 percent. The employees were cut to four days. Uh, my wife, we had uh, janitors that were there. Um, they were costing us seventy thousand dollars a year. My wife and I. Um, cleaned the toilets for over a year. She actually stayed on for two years cleaning the restrooms wow. to save the 70 grand. Um, and by uh, September, 
these people, the customers with the, the 140 machines that were in the stores, they didn't want to pay that mortgage. So they'd buy that $600 for the product, whether they needed it or not. So we created a consistent flow of orders for $600 a month times 140 machines. Um, in September, um, we were in the black. Uh, we restored all the management to 100%. Um, we re, uh, reimbursed them the 25% that they had been deducted. We were back to five days um, uh, work on the, in the factory floor, and we ended the year in the black. And so that's how we drug our way through the, the, the Great Recession. Amazing that when things are falling apart, and your history is that when things were falling apart, they really did fall apart and hit rock bottom. You right. built it back up. Things start to fall apart again. And what do you do? You invest in the company and find a crazy, wild, brand new way to save the company. Um, and, and you tell somebody, let me pay you back to do it. I mean, you, you, here's another time that you could have just washed your hands of it and said, ah, it's just not yeah. going to work, but you didn't. Right. Um, yeah. Desperate time call for desperate measures. And, uh, um, how many employees did looking, you have at looking, that time, Peter? What's, how many employees? How many, at that time, how many employees oh, were you responsible for? Maybe 150, I'm yeah. guessing. And that plays into it too, doesn't it? It's not just your company. It's just not just your name or the future. It's it's these families that, that you've brought along with you that have helped to build this company. And you have to do what's right for them. You have to win, oh, don't you? Yeah, you do. You do. Uh, I mean, they're they're not just, they're not family members, but they're very close friends. Yeah. Um, and so you realize they've given their, their lives to you and it's your job to protect them. Um, tell me a little bit as we, we start to come towards the end, but tell me a little bit about <laughs> the fact that you are the number one producer of these, these items. This, this business you've built is extremely successful, better than your competition. That's the definition of number one. Your competition, a lot of them, are using uh, overseas materials, things made in China. You are fully made right here in the United States. Tell me how that works, because most people will say that can't be done in, in this day and age. How did you do that? Well, I think it goes right back to the culture of the company and the pride that we all take in, in being successful. Um, we're all committed to holding the position that we have in the marketplace. Um, we, we, there's this uh, rating that comes out every month by Giftbeat. Um, and they rank the, the different suppliers and uh, we're always, all right, we want to stay number one in the industry. So we're watching the way this is all being rated by the, the stores in the business. So we take a great deal of pride in what we do. We're very competitive um, and we enjoy being successful. Um, and so does quality in this equation outweigh price? Because I have to assume that you are selling things at a little bit of a higher price because you're not making them overseas. Unless I'm missing something, that has to be part of the equation, right? Yeah, our prices are a little bit higher than China. Um, and it's, but I think the fact that it is produced domestically is also an asset for yes. us. Uh, it's what peop draws people to us. Yeah. Um, and they like to have in their stores products that are made in the, United, in the U.S. of A. So that's been an asset as well. Yeah, I, I agree. I think that's, that's probably right. And, and it's alluring for a business owner to cut costs and keep price and revenue and things. And, and I don't think it's bad if someone does, you know, over, you know, ship things overseas. But you made a conscious decision not to. I'm sure that at times um, you had opportunities or saw the benefits or things. Can Making those decisions to stay here in the States, can you tell me a little bit about uh, some of those tough decisions you had to make? Well, I have to be totally candid with you. <clears throat> we do bring in components uh, from China. 
Okay. Uh, I mean, it's not a big part of our business, but when it comes to making little boxes and where there's a high degree of labor, we import those. Um, we do an awful lot with ceramic coasters. Um, we import the coasters and then we do the pgram done. So in those situations, we don't uh, prom- advertise them as being all made. Uh, we will uh, advertise those as being pr- uh, printed in the United States of America. So sure. we do utilize comp- uh, various parts, but for the most part, we're using uh, eastern white pine, pine that grows up in New England that comes mm-hmm. in by the truckloads that is then processed through the, man- through the milling department. It goes through the paint line, goes through the substrate printers, um, and is packaged up over five conveyor lines with um, 80 women running five conveyor lines, um, going to the warehouse and shipped out the door. Mm-hmm. American made right here in, in, in Orville and Dalton, right here in Ohio. Right. Fantastic. Are you produced anywhere else or is it all right here in Ohio? It's all right here. Yeah. Very good. We, Tell we, me a little bit about what's next for P. Graham Dunn. What, and I know you've sold the company, but it is employee owned. And I'm sure you keep your, your eyes on things a little bit and you're really proud of the success. What are the, the hurdles that you face moving forward or that the company faces that is going to have to show some grit to overcome? Well, the COVID was, was a huge part of that, of course. Um, sure. We've been shut down for 10 weeks and we had a, a order on the dock for $180,000 that we were not even allowed to ship, which we lost the order of. So it was a big step back. Um, but the company right now is as competitive and as thriving as it's ever been. Uh, and I think the ESOP is a big, well, the, the, cult, the history of the culture is a big part of that. Uh, but also the ESOP is another big part of it. They now are the shareholders and the owners of the business. Um, in April, this past April was our biggest April month in shipping. It was the third biggest month in the history of the company. Um, so wow. there's an awful lot of uh, backslapping going on over there about how well they are doing in, fight, in spite of the challenges that they're being faced with. Um, they have uh, sales goals, um, that are rather remarkable, uh, what they hope to achieve in um, 2021, 2022. Uh, and there's also kind of a, a generational gap there too. The older, the folks my age are like, now nah, let's let's take care of this and slow it down. <laughs> we have a whole bunch of millennials in there that are yeah. uh, very driven that are wanting to push it the other way. Yeah. So we have some very uh, good internal uh, tensions in the business. Um, one thing I must tell you about is that in the process of the sale of the company, um, I want I put together a board. Three of the board members were uh, had a collective years uh, of 140 years of working at Pgram Dunn. So there's your culture preservation right there. Yes. The oh CEO, man. The CEO um, had been with me for 20 years, and he's running the company. The board chair is a personal friend of mine who's brilliant. So I I put together um, a combination of talents there to lead the company going forward. And, and fortunately, it's working very well. Well, congratulations on setting that up from the first two employees that are still there all and the way to... One of them is a board member. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So you've been blessed and you've made good decisions. And 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 I think that it, it, it shows in everything you're doing. And I will say this, I believe, this is just my opinion, that when COVID hit, it, it hit us hard and yeah. it took... It took a shell away of, of protection. Like it, all of a sudden there was this thing that could really hurt us and really could shut us down, uh, similar to, to past events. And I think people learn to rely again on things that they trust and that they know. 
and they feel confident. And if they were going to spend a dollar, it was going to be a dollar well spent and not just on any old thing that they're thinking about. And I, if you tell me that April, one of the biggest months in the history of the company, I think that's by no accident. I think that people are, are trusting things and they trust your name and they trust your product. So congratulations. Yeah. Well, thank you, Brian. It's been a joy to chat with you. Before you go, tell me about your book. You wrote a book. It's called The Unlikely Entrepreneur. And I want to hear a little bit about, just a little bit about what it is and how people can can find it. Because I know this podcast is only scratching the surface of your incredible story. Uh, we, well, it's a story about um, my being born in China and being raised in Canada and moving down to uh, Ohio. Um, there's 23 chapters. Um, the last two or three chapters talk um, a great deal about the ESOP. Um, chapters like 12 to 20 talk about uh, P. Graham Dunn um, and how we restarted. Um, and up through chapter 12, it was all about how I basically flop, flopped around like a fish out of water <laughs> trying, to, trying to figure this all out. So um, I talked far more about where I messed up and screwed up and failed uh, than I did about how I succeeded. Uh, but as I said earlier, um, embracing adversity uh, was a big part of uh, what enabled us to do that. And um, it was a, a very cathartic experience to uh, write the book. I enjoyed it. Uh, it was my way of kind of stepping away from the company because I was just so obsessive about the business and I, I needed to make a break and to get away. Um, being a consultant did not work for me and I had to get back to who I was as a person. What was the hardest thing about writing the book? Mm. Uh, I don't know. One, I, I would, I would answer that somewhat differently by saying I wanted to make sure that I didn't write anything in the book um, that I would regret saying about somebody. Um, so I, I stayed totally away from negativity. Mm -hmm. um, now the gentleman that took over from Wood Decor, I did have to change his name. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, and I did, I did not say very many nice things about him. Yes. Uh, but uh, I wanted, I wanted the, the book to be encouraging. Um, and if there was any blame to be placed, it was going to be on me, not on someone else. Yeah. So that's why I tried to keep it, keep it clean. Again, about your name. And I will share something you told me earlier. I think there's, uh, it's just been started and there's a few thousand books out there already that people are saying, and we've gotten up to this point, uh, no typos or uh, quality issues, which is absolutely what we would expect from P. Graham Dunn. So I'll, I'll give you a pat for that too, because that's not the, always the case <laughs> when we're reading books. Uh, Peter, and how would people reach out to you? I, I imagine people might want to talk about ESOP or they might want to talk about the book or uh, just just uh, hear from you or see if there's ways that they can, uh, can, can learn from you a bit. How would they reach out to you and find you? I'll give you my email address. It's Peter at P. Graham Dunn, all one word, Peter at P. Graham Dunn.com. And you'd be I'd welcome any uh, emails that you want to send me. That's fantastic. Peter, thank you so much for sharing your story. Before I say goodbye to you, I want to give a quick plug to my company that is uh, paying for this uh, opportunity for us to be on here, and, and that is Spire Marketing. We are thrilled to help businesses succeed. Your business, Peter, has succeeded, and and uh, and other businesses are trying to. And you know full well uh, the ceilings that you can hit and the 
the strategies that you need and the assistance that sometimes is needed to overcome things. And so that's what Spire does. And our team can come alongside a business owner and a business leader and help them figure things out. So if it's digital marketing, website design, uh, brand strategy, implementation systems, those are the things that we do. And you can find us at spiread.com. My name is Brian Leffelock. I'm the director of sales at Spire and the host of Dash of Grit podcast. Thank you so much, Peter Graham Dunn, for being a part of our show. I really do appreciate it. Thank you, Brian. It's an honor to be here. Folks, we do this once a week. Check back uh, next week for another episode. And until then, stay gritty and win the day. This is a Dash of Grit. Recipes for success from courageous leaders who overcome challenges and build great things. 